Well, today we are going to talk here in Easter 2021. I think we were supposed to be living on the moon by now, according to the science books of when I was a child anyway. But uh, we're not. And, uh, but we do have electric cars. That's, that's, that's progress. But Easter 2021, and I want to talk on the importance of the resurrection. Do you understand the importance of the resurrection? Jesus died, but you know what? There were no believers. A matter of fact, the apostles were quite shocked. They were a bit overwhelmed. Some of them absolutely hard-hearted about it, like Thomas. They were all unbelievers, just thinking, man, we just wasted three years of our life, and all the wonderful things Jesus taught really had no clout, had no real power with it, just like any other guy, he was dead. He was buried. There were still no believers, even the sweet believing women that were with him, that ministered to him, they 100% were confident that his body was going to be in that tomb. They took all the fixings to anoint his body as the tradition was of the Jews. And, and they were all prepared to minister to Jesus' dead body. But there were no believers after his burial. It wasn't until Jesus raised from the dead that we have Christians. <laughs> so people say, you know, well, we believe in the resurrection against what the Bible said. There was no Bible. There was the Old Testament. Matter of fact, if there was no resurrection, you wouldn't have a Bible. <laughs> if there was no resurrection, we wouldn't have a church. If there was no resurrection, there would be no sunrise services. God bless those people that got up early and went to one. But uh, this is 930. It's sunrise somewhere in the world, right? We'd have no resurrection Sunday mornings. The fact is, is without the resurrection, you really have no Christianity whatsoever. Some great teachings, some supposed miracles, a really nice guy from Nazareth. But we have no Christianity that can transform and change our lives to cause a person to be born again, to escape the eternal death and have eternal life. This is what we're going to look at today. What if the resurrection never happened? What if like the mockers said in Acts 17, when Paul was preaching Christ and he came to the resurrection, his little speech ended there on Mars Hill because they started laughing at such a ridiculous idea of there being any type of resurrection from the dead. Or what about those teachers that were infiltrating the Christian church in 2 Timothy chapter 2? Their message like a cancer was spreading saying, there was a resurrection, but it's over. If you're alive right now, too late. You missed it. No resurrection for you. And it caused many to quit following Christ because they had no hope of the resurrection. What are the implications if the resurrection never really happened? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is preached that he's risen from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, listen to the implications. Our preaching is empty or in vain. Your faith is empty or in vain. And we are false witnesses of God. And we, because we testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom evidently he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not raise. For if the dead do not rise, and Christ is not risen, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Paul actually goes on to say, if there is no resurrection, forget Christianity. I'm going to go eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. Why, why try to wait for a heaven that doesn't exist? You have to face this question head on. The entire gospel is a lie if there is no resurrection or the opposite is also true. It's a powerful, life-changing, absolute truth. There is a resurrection. How do we know this? By witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 and 6, he says that Christ, after he raised from the dead, was then seen by Cephas, or Peter, and then by the twelve. They're called the twelve, even though minus Judas. After he had, he was risen, or excuse me, after he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, over 500, of whom the greater part remained to the present time, but some have fallen asleep, which is the Christian word for they've died. After that, he was seen by James and also by the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Paul had a unique conversion. Christ himself witnessed to him. Peter, in the very first Christian sermon, said this in Acts 2.32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And I can imagine the other apostles and some of the group of the 500 shaking their head going, Ask me, I'll tell you about it. The writer of the Gospel of Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And he says in Acts chapter 1, The former account I made, O Theophilus, lover of God, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he through the Holy Spirit was given, has given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by, listen to this, by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Luke, this doctor, this intellectual says, this is one fact of history that can be proved more than any other fact in all of history. Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers said this, I suppose, brethren, that we may have persons arise who will doubt whether there was ever such a man as Julius Caesar or Napoleon Bonaparte. And when they do, when all reliable history is flung into the winds, then, but not till then, may they begin to question whether Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
For this historical fact is attested by more witnesses than almost any other fact that stands on record in history, whether sacred or profane. The fact is, is there's more written about Jesus than any other man. The many infallible proofs. Throughout history, there are men who understood if I can prove there was no resurrection, I can stop these annoying Christians. A great lawyer named Simon Greenleaf was an atheist who set out to do that. And as he began to put his courtroom together of his presentation of proving that this whole Christian thing is a big hoax and there was no resurrection, he ended up becoming a Christian. In more modern times, Josh Mendow, also a lawyer, the same exact thing. And he wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. And then also the evidences for the resurrection. The fact is, is when you try to disprove the resurrection, you quickly find, I believe in the resurrection. So what is the gospel? And the resurrection is the most important part of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received. Number one, Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, the most important of all, that he rose again the third day, according to the scripture. Now, Paul here is referring to the Old Testament scripture at this time. And there are many scriptures, but just to name one for each of those. Christ died for our sins in Isaiah 53, 8. It says he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who would declare his generation? Us. We're doing it right now. For he was cut off, put to death, from the land of the living. Here's why. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. The Lamb of God, who bore our sins upon himself that we could be forgiven. Our substitute lamb, he bled and died in our place. Secondly, he was buried. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says that they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich. Joseph of Arimathea was in the process of building a tomb and it had not quite been completed. No man had ever laid in it before. And it's interesting that tomb is still not finished. And you can go and see it today. I just this morning watched a Sunday morning sunrise service from the garden tomb there in Jerusalem. It was put on by CBN. It was amazing. And then he was raised on the third day. Psalm 62.10. This is Jesus prophesying, speaking in advance to the Father about himself a thousand years before. In Psalm 16.10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, which is uh, the holding place of the righteous and the wicked, nor will you allow my Holy One to see corruption. His body wouldn't decay and rot as corpses do. So what is this day of resurrection all about? Again, he tells us in verse 1 through 4. I want to read it again in 1 Corinthians 15. 
Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also, notice, you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, and you, if you hold fast that word. Four things. We received it. We stand in it. It's that, which, that gospel which saves us. And now we hold fast to that word, which he says, I preached to you unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered you, in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Let's cover that. Christ died for our sins. We would... <laughs> I think do ourselves injustice if we didn't read out of Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6, some of those powerful healing prophecies in Scripture. Surely he, the Messiah, Jesus, has bore our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Jesus' whole life was acquainted with grief and sorrow. People looked at him going, man, there is one guy that God doesn't bless. But he was being tempted at all point. We were tempted that he could aid us now while we're in this human flesh. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions are, it's black and white. It's like the IRS telling you owe them more money. It's just, you're not going to get anywhere with that. You, 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 it's just black and white. I know that sin. I'm thinking about it. Yeah, it's still sin. It's wrong. It's hurtful to me, to others, to God. And I'm still going to do it. That's transgression. That's why he was whipped with a whip. That's why nails were driven through his hands and his feet. He was bruised for our iniquities. Iniquities are lust. I didn't plan on sinning, but all of a sudden, whoa. And then the next thing I know, I'm in it. And I'm going, how did I get here? That's our sinful bodies. The chastisement or the crucifixion of our peace, shalom, our healing, our wholeness was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Amen to that. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Boy, is that true? The proverb says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is destruction. We've all gone our own way and brought much destruction. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, I did not come to be served. I came to serve and give my life a ransom for many. The word ransom is to buy out of slavery to buy us out of the slavery of our own bad choices, to buy us out of the slavery of our own foolishness, to buy us out of the slavery of the power of sin that was upon us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of the greatest verses in the Bible, he made him, the Father made Jesus, the Lamb of God, made him who knew no sin. Jesus was tempted at all points we are tempted, but he never sinned. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus never had sins in his own body until he had our sins upon him. 
It wasn't the Italians, the Romans, that killed Jesus. It wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus. It was your sins, my sins, that killed Jesus. The Bible says the soul that sins shall surely die. Jesus never sinned, so he could have hypothetically stayed on that cross for eternity and never died. But he did die because your sins put him to death. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's, it's not that we were given some driver's license of righteousness to get into heaven. You know, here's my ID. There's my righteous stamp. No, we became it's not a robe that we wear sometimes. We can take off or somebody can steal it or moss can eat it up. No, we become this sinful person. God's Holy Spirit comes into our life. He says he circumcises our heart of that old sin and he takes the writings that are written against us and he crushes it and throws it away as far as the east is to the west. So now when we sin, and we still sin in this body, well, write that one down. Oh, there is no place to write it down. <laughs> Those handwritings have all been destroyed. But he sinned 10 times. Where are we going to write them down? Well, he's righteous. There is no place to write those down. Isn't that great? That we no longer have sin ever again accounted to us. That the father looks at Jesus, his son, in perfect righteousness, one who has never sinned. And he looks at you, you're exactly like his son, Jesus. Perfect in righteousness as though we had never sinned. And he, by the power of his death, by the power of his resurrection, maintains us in that place of righteousness God in Ephesians 2, we're studying that on Sunday mornings. He says he already sees us seated with him in heavenly places. God doesn't see the past and the present and the future differently. God's eternal. And he sees everyone that's believed on him. They're righteous and they're already with Christ, our husband, our friend, our savior. And then the third thing, not only did he die for our sins, not only was he buried, but he rose again. This means Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross. But how do we know that it's really a substitute that the Father would receive? Right? I mean, if I, I've been in other countries that only receive their type of money. And I pull out my American dollars and they're like, I, I didn't even know what to do with that. And I'm like, man, this is worth a lot. Not here. And then they give me some of their funny money and I'm like, this is worth something? Oh yeah, you can buy with this. Well, how do we know that Jesus dying on the cross is a lamb without spot or wrinkle or blemish? How do we know that that lamb of God is a worthy substitute for our sins a satisfaction of our judgment our condemnation of our sins fell upon him and now the judge says the price has been paid 
Let me tell you something. It's because he rose again from the dead. We just read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, we are still in our sins. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, it meant that there is no life in his name, that the, the sacrifice was not a worthy substitute sufficient for payment for our sins. So now Romans 6.23 or 6.23 makes sense. The wages of sin is death. That's eternal separation from God. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, the day you eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that day you will die. Well, they didn't fall dead under that tree and become fertilizer. They still were alive existing on this earth, but they no longer could have fellowship with God. They were kicked out of the Garden of Eden and God no longer walked with them as he once did. They were separated from God. So the wages of sin is an eternal separation from God. But now that Christ has risen from the dead, the gift of God is eternal life in, through, by Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen to this progression in John 10 as Jesus talks about himself. In John 10, 11, he says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. In verse 15, the father knows me, even so I know the father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. In verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay my life down that I may take it again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I received from my father. What character, what self-control. Jesus in the garden says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me, is there any other way men can be forgiven? Is there any other way men can be declared righteous to go to our heaven? If there's any possibility of any other way, not my will, your will be done, but let this cup pass from me. He prayed that and blood vessels began to break in his body, sweating blood as he prayed so intensely. The father said nothing. Angels came and ministered to him. Peter whipped out his sword when they came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus said, I even right now could call a legion of angels down to deliver me. Nobody's taking me. These guys aren't taking me. I'm giving myself under arrest to them. Jesus wasn't, didn't lose control. Man didn't overcome Jesus. Jesus willingly gave himself as the lamb to be slain. And this is why he says there in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I've received my, my father. John the Baptist prophesied it as he saw Jesus coming. Behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said this, as they were saying, well, show us a sign after he had done so many miracles. It's crazy. And he said, I'm not going to show you guys any sign except this one. As Jonah was a type, a picture, a prophecy 
of the work of Christ. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth in Sheol. The holding had two holding places, one for the righteous and one for the wicked. And he said, this is the only sign I'm going to give you. In Luke 9.22, as Jesus was just about ready to enter Jerusalem for the last time with his disciples, he said to them plainly, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. <laughs> they didn't catch it. It was too overwhelming for them. Now that Christ is raised from the dead, he's conquered death for all of us. John 17, in the most amazing prayer, I think, in the entire Bible, Jesus starts this beautiful prayer off in John 17, verse 1 and 2. Jesus spoke these words as he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. I love this next part in verse 2 as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him who is that all who will believe anybody who will believe he'll give the gift of eternal life and so we see here that jesus says i'm going to raise from the dead in Hebrews 12, it says, The joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, because he knew that he would be able to give us eternal life, that when we breathe our last on this earth, that's not the end of the story. a matter of fact, it's been a very short story, hasn't it? <laughs> 70 years, 25,550 days. That's a short story. But it's only the seed, isn't it? The plant is coming. Unless the seed dies and falls into the earth, it can't produce. So like that little brown seed, you're looking at this little thing going, what is this little thing? But inside that little tiny seed is an incredible genius. It can set in a jar in your garden area for years. But when you take it out and you plant it and the mixture with the dirt and the water you don't get a big brown seed oh well wish I hadn't planted that ugly thing no what comes out of that this incredible beautiful flower going how did that little ugly brown dead looking thing and then it produces beautiful rose bush it's a picture of us Christ is saying, I'm going to raise from the dead and I can give life to everyone I see, to whoever believes upon me, to all who will believe, to all who will receive. I've got the joy. I'm enduring the cross. Oh, it's painful. It's horrible. I've never experienced sin before. Oh, this sin. Oh, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? It's okay. Because all these ugly little seeds <laughs> who believe in me, I'm going to take this earthly body and I'm going to transform it into a heavenly body and never again shall the word death be spoken there's no graveyards in heaven 
There is no death. There's no sorrow. There's no pain. There's no suffering. No more tears will be shed, except probably the tears of joy. So how do I receive this resurrection? It's by faith in God through his son, Jesus Christ, our Messiah. John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved. God so tolerates the world. That's often what people think. God is so fed up with the world. I'm going to make you guys righteous. I'm tired of looking at your unrighteousness. That's not what's happening, is it? God loves us. He wants this ugly little seed to turn into an eternal, beautiful body. He loves the world so much that he gave the most precious thing in all of heaven and all of earth and all of space and of all of time throughout all the history of man. The most precious, beautiful thing to the father is his only begotten son. To die for our sins, to be buried and to raise again the third day. That whoever believes in him should, number one, not perish, but have everlasting life. In, John, in Ephesians 2, 9, by grace you've been saved. That means you don't deserve it. You don't earn it. We're never worthy of it. It doesn't matter that you're not worthy. It doesn't matter that you don't deserve it. It doesn't matter that you're, you're not going to do something great to make God worth God's time. He just loves you. By grace, you've been saved through faith. The not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. John 6, 28 and 29, Then they said to him, What shall we do to, that we can work the works, plural, of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the only work, singular, you need to do. Believe on him whom he, the Father, has sent. So put faith in what? Put faith in Christ's nature. Put faith in Christ's faithfulness. Put faith in Christ's character. Put faith in Christ's promises that we have his word spoken through the Bible. In Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible describes it as believe, trust, accept, receive. All the same thing of saying, Jesus Christ, be my Savior. I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. I need a Savior because I know I've got to be perfect as my Heavenly Father is perfect to go to heaven. And there's no way I can attain to that in this sinful body. And God will give salvation, eternal life as a gift. And listen to this point, to be never taken away. Why is that so essential? Because I don't think that you really have saving faith till you realize believing on Christ alone is an eternal gift. In 1 John 4, 18, he says, In 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment 
or judgment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. You see, the gospel where it keeps man in paranoia, it keeps man in fear, it keeps telling you there's fine print at the bottom of the contract that says you didn't live up to it, you didn't pray hard enough, you didn't go to church enough, you didn't give enough, and, and you did this and that, and th those things are naughty on the naughty list. So now there's a, there's a possibility that the hope you had in not perishing but having eternal life is sort of in question and you need to shape up right now. Or you may end up standing before God in judgment after all. That's not the gospel. The word gospel means good news. That's not good news. That's horrible news. To give a hope and then to have that hope dashed. To give somebody a joy that heaven is theirs and then to find out later, nah, not, not, not so much after all. I, I loved you, but then you got ugly and now I don't love you anymore. How horrible. Guys, it's just a lie from the pit of hell. In John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, in your heart, you can say, Jesus, be my Savior. Right now, you've come to him. You'll never perish. God loves you with a perfect love and it should cast out all paranoia, all fear, all worry of your rightness with him. And John 6, 40, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone, how many people? Everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to change his nature, his character, his promises. In John 6, 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life end of story he didn't say whoever believes in me has a good possibility of having an everlasting life As a matter of fact if you really start living holy you got a probability you'll have everlasting life we're gonna wait and see but you're in line i've got your number don't call us we'll call you there's a good chance you'll have everlasting life just wait for the phone call to come in. Wait for the text message to beep. No. John 10, 27 to 29. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Do you hear that word? It doesn't say they have a good possibility they won't perish. He says it dogmatically. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Neither man nor demon nor the weakness of man, the sinfulness of man, the struggles of man, the fleshliness of man, nothing can stop God letting go of you. My Father who is given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. The Son has us in one hand, the Father has us in the other hand, and neither one of them are letting us go. We're his children. It can happen right this second. 
We have this most magnificent picture when Jesus is on the cross. You got two equal sinners on each side. Not one rapist and one murderer, but two incorrigible thieves who are being crucified along Christ. We have the picture where they're both leaving the prison and with the crowds of people that are ripping Jesus' beard out and spitting on them, these guys who are also carrying their horizontal part of the cross, the patabulum, they're carrying it. They also are spending their energies mocking Jesus. Then they get hung on the cross and from the cross, they're both mocking Jesus with the crowd. But there Jesus on the cross is nothing but loving. John, take care of mom. And then he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There was no anger. There was no revenge. There was no spitting back and screaming back and mocking back. Jesus in his tender, loving way from the sincerity of his heart is like, I don't want even one person here, not even the guy who nailed me to the cross, not these horrible Pharisees that have persecuted me since the day I started my ministry. Nobody around here who's a part of this, who's been saying those things, I don't want any of them, you to hold it against them, Father. Forgive them all. And that thief, one of them, said, Jesus... Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, without hesitation, said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. The other thief kept his mouth shut. He didn't believe. What do we learn in that? That we are saved not of ourselves. It's not of our works. It's a gift of God. That thief's hands were tied. His feet were tied. He would never go to church. He would never read a Bible. He would never do good to the poor or give financially. Yet he is going to be in heaven because it's not of ourselves, it's not of works. It's a gift of God. This is so essential for us to understand. It's a gift. In 1 John 4, 8, excuse me, in uh, Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, it says this, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable unchanging Ephesians 2 9 makes it or 8 makes it clear it's not of ourself it's not of works it's a gift of God and the Bible also says the gifts of God can never change Jesus says it simply and clearly listen to his own words in John 1 12 but as many as receive him me Jesus to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Is that you right now? Jesus, I need a savior. I need one to, for, to save me from myself. I need somebody to save me from my flesh, my own wicked, sinful ways. I believe you paid all my sins on the cross. I believe in you right now. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you're saved. Receive him. Once again, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should what? Not perish, but have everlasting life. No verse after that to qualify that statement. 
It doesn't say in verse 17. Now, don't get carried away with this. It doesn't mean everybody who believes will still make it to heaven. Don't, don't, get it, don't exaggerate this point. Not everybody who... No, it doesn't do that, does it? In John 5, 24, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come unto judgment. Let me say that again. Shall not come unto judgment, but has already passed from death into life. In Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and for the Gentile. So as we conclude here this morning on this resurrection day, what is the proper response to the resurrection of Christ from the dead? What is the proper response of one bearing so much sin and guilt and shame and reviling upon himself? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for the love of Christ compels us, constrains us, because we judge thus, we discern it in this way, that if one died for all, then what? All died. He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Christ has set us free from our slavery of sin and guilt and shame, not to just serve ourselves and to live in peace on earth for ourselves. He did that to make us a light and a salt of the earth, to spread that good news, the gospel. Here's another question in response. Why don't all come and believe? Why doesn't everybody see the necessity of the cross, the burial, and the resurrection? First John 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. First John 1.10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let me stop just for a minute. It's a historical, provable fact. There was a guy, Jesus from Nazareth, who taught, who died on the cross. Other sources outside the Bible, such as Josephus, tells us about his crucifixion. His beating was severe, that the crowds ripped out his beard and his hair, that his face had been hit so many times that it no longer looked human. When the crown was put upon his head, so much blood came out on this bloated face already, cracked and bruised and black-eyed and so puffed up that the blood came down, covered his face completely, and dried. It was caked on there and dried black. And he did not look like a human being. And then nails through his hands and his feet, and it was suffering. He didn't do that for everybody's good to be better. You see, that was what you'd have to say. Oh, I think all men are basically good. Then Christ went through a horrible, torturous crucifixion to make good people better. 
doesn't make sense, does it? Christ died on the cross. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Christ was brutalized because your sins are that bad. Your foolishness, your sinfulness, our human condition is so corrupt. The proverb says, like a dog returns to its vomit. That's our human nature, isn't it? The thing that made us throw up, we go back to it over and over again. It's putting us in bondage, but yet we keep eating it up and vomiting it out a second time. And then a third time, and cruising around going, hey, there's a nice meal, and we eat it for the fifth time. That's our sinful, horrible, rotten condition. This is why Christ had to suffer in such a great way. But men will still say, I'm basically good. You know, I'm a good guy. God's a good guy. I'm sort of cool. He's sort of cool. He's going to say, yeah, you didn't do the traditional Christian thing, but, you know, you're so cool. I want you in heaven with me. This is what people have believed. If you say that you're without sin, you make Jesus a mockery. You make his cross a mockery. You make his death an absolute joke if it was not necessary. In John 3, 17, God did not send his son to the world, condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But then it goes on in John 3, 19 to say, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Why don't men come? Because they don't understand the truth about themselves, that they, like all men, are horrible sinners needing a Savior. As for me, Brian Newberry, I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. I need it every single day. This is why I've received Christ as my Savior. Have you? Have you trusted in Christ, the work of the cross, his burial, and his resurrection as sufficient for your salvation to be accepted by the Father, to never be judged, to pass from death to life, to never perish, but to not just never perish, but beyond that, to have everlasting life in heaven? There'll be a new earth, a new Jerusalem will be there with him around his beautiful throne with the multitude of angels. No more devil, no more sin. All of us in our beautiful glorified bodies exactly as Christ. Won't you believe it now? A couple of verses I shared earlier, I want to share again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is just to forgive us of our sins. Remember earlier you said, have faith in what? In his nature, in his character, in his promises, in the fact that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchangeable. If we will confess, notice it doesn't say get on your knees and beg. I remember being in Mexico City and on the way to the Basilica, they, they have a center section in the cars where the cars are going by where people can crawl on their knees for two miles uphill on asphalt to finally get to the basilica and then if they tie a ribbon on the gates 
then God will grant their petition. And so many of them are just so laid down with the guilt of their sin. They're, they're doing this repeatedly, seven times a year, bloodied knees and spending hours, sometimes days to get there. To see little old ladies praying that their son that died would get out of purgatory, crawling on their knees, bloodied, and trying to get up there. And the priest then saying, oh, let me bless you for that. My heart just breaks when I think, no, it's a gift of God. It's not of yourself. It's not of works. It's joyfully, freely given. You don't, it didn't get undone. Well, I, I, I did receive the Lord a few months ago, but I, I, need him, I need to receive him again because I've had a really rough six months. No. Just like any child coming to his parents. It's like the shepherd has responsibility over the sheep. He will restore your soul. He'll lead you in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? Because you're worthy? No, it's by grace. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve it. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. What have I discovered? That I'm still in this sinful body, even though God's spirit lives in me and the willing to want to be in that new body, to be in heaven, to be in a place where there's no sin and no devil and everybody's loving Jesus and walking according to his will. I crave that. Nevertheless, I find myself in a sinful planet where there's a real devil who's out to kill, still and destroy. And I find myself needing God's grace and his saving power i'm going to read this for the third time today john 3 16 god so loves the world he loves you so much that he gave his only begotten son and he did it all on the cross it's finished by his stripes we are healed by his bruising all our iniquities are forgiven the chastisement of your well-being fell upon him and now you are forgiven. You are healed. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ. Whom you have sent. One final verse today. 1 John five thirteen. These things I have written to you. Who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know. That you may know, that you may know, that you may know, that you may have confidence and never a seed of doubt that you have eternal life. And that you may continue to believe in the name, the nature, the character, the promises, the power of his resurrection. You may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Lord, we thank you for your word today. And enough, there cannot be enough said about the wonders the benefits, the giftings, the power, the joy that all have been brought through your resurrection. This one moment in time, all Christian churches are unified on this day throughout the entire planet. Some out in the middle of Africa, some in the jungles of the Amazon, some in underground churches in China and in Indonesia and in Iran. They are all quietly rejoicing it's finished 
Jesus completed the work on the cross and it was received by the Father because of the resurrection. And Lord, we cry out now that we might know you and the power of your resurrection. We come. There's many here today that believe in you, but they're weighed down with guilt. Increase their faith today. That there's the gospel, the good news. That we're to walk in the joy of our salvation. If any have sinned, we just confess it. You're faithful and righteous to cleanse us and keep forgiving us from all unrighteousness. We come, Lord, wash us right now. There's some here today that finally faith has come by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and they need you. Hook, line, and sinker. They need to commit themselves receiving you as Lord, as Savior, as God, as shepherd, as friend, as husband. And to say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to be yours every day. Every day I want to live for you now. I want to be the light and the salt of the earth. I want to be fruitful, bearing fruit so men can see your good works. Or men can see my good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Men can see you, Jesus, in our lives. Maybe you're at home listening online, or maybe you're listening to this message 10 10 years after it's been preached. It's very simple. Just believe in your heart. Pray a prayer something like this if if it'll help. Dear Heavenly Father, I believe that you love me. I believe that you sent your only begotten Son to be my substitute, to be the Lamb that would be slain in my place, perfect, without spot, without blemish. And you received in Christ all my past, present, and even future sins to be forgiven. That I would never perish. That I would have eternal life, a new heavens, a new earth, with you surrounded by the angels, a new Jerusalem for all of eternity. I receive you as my Savior. Lord, would you be the Lord of my life? Be my shepherd and lead me to the green pastures for your name's sake. Help me, Lord. I'm yours from this day forward. If you prayed that prayer, we'd love to talk with you. We have a Christian Foundation class. We'd like to let you know about, get you a Bible, show you where to start reading. Just come and talk to myself or anybody up here. We'd love to just point you in the right direction. Lord, bless you and keep you. And let's say it one more time. He is risen. Amen.